0: Let's pray. Father, it is an extraordinary privilege to hear you speak through the power of your Holy Spirit as we open the scriptures together. And we pray that you would take this word as you have so many times in this church and do Do marvelous things with it, Lord. Do things that we cannot anticipate over these moments. We thank you for the gift of the Bible. We thank you for the gift of preaching. We thank you that you've called this church into existence. and Lord, that's what we're going to look at today is, is the new birth. So would you, I pray especially, Lord, that those who are among us who have not experienced new life in Christ, that they may be born again even in these moments as I preach and Lord, any here within the sound of my voice who have reason for strong assurance, I pray that they would get assurance of the new birth, that they would walk out of here confident, that they would know that they have eternal life. So come and give something to each one of us now. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. We just heard read for us really one of the most uh, exquisite and uh, longest sentences in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 is actually all one sentence in Greek. Um, the only way we cope with it in English is punctuating it everywhere. <laughs> and it, actually, the sentence doesn't stop in verse 9, where our reading stopped. That sentence goes clear to verse 12. And for me, it's all pretty wonderful. I, I love that first chapter of 1 Peter. But for me, the, the high watermark is, is verse 3, the first verse that Dave read for us. That verse has everything to do with the topic of today's sermon. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead God has caused us to be born again if you are a Christian God made you one through the new birth you have been born again that's true of you if you are a Christian you've been given new birth And another way to speak of it is the Bible word regeneration it's the same reality new birth born again regeneration re as in again or a second time and generation uh, to to bring forth in birth so regeneration means born again new birth and that's the topic in front of us Jesus says in John chapter 3 verse 1 you must be born again I hope as you dwell on it a little bit that that might sound at least slightly strange to your ears It's strange for a number of reasons, Um, not the least of which is that Jesus frames the reality of new birth in terms of a command for us. You must be born again, John 3, 7. It's a demand. It's the language of obligation. Jesus is giving us a directive. Uh, That would not be a problem if we had it in our power to bring it about. I say to my daughter, don't forget to close the car door because she can. My wife tells me to do the dishes because I am able, though not always willing. But this demand is different. When Jesus says to you, you must be born again, he is insisting on something that, left to ourselves, we cannot make happen. So built right into the structure of this command is a profound mystery. These words, five words, carry within them a reality that boggles the mind. If you just hang with them a little bit, you must be born again. Now, I've prayed about this all week. Some of you maybe have come into the sanctuary this morning looking for something new, looking for a new life. Maybe you're standing at a fork in the road. You've come to church this morning, stuck or unsure. Maybe you're sick, really sick. Or maybe you're just sick and tired. It might be that you've made a series of poor decisions that haunt you, and they've led you to where you are today. Maybe that you're confused, and you, you just want to know what's true. You want to know what's true? You want a new life. If that's you, in case that it is, I want you to listen to me very, very closely. If you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. If you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. And it's at this time I'd like to draw your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. If you'd like to use one of the Red Bibles underneath the seats, the text begins on page 887, 887 in the Red Bibles. So that's the Gospel of John starting in chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. First point today, Jesus is crystal clear on the necessity of regeneration. Jesus is crystal clear on the necessity of regeneration. Now, the last three verses of chapter 3 are very eye-opening, but they're often Breezed by in our study of the Bible. They are often overlooked. Uh, Verses 23 to 25 in chapter 2 have very deep ties, both with what just came before and what is coming up after in chapter 3. So, on the one hand, verses 23 to 25 are tied to the previous passage about Jesus' cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. So verse 23, now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and he believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. It's just the next step after verse 20, 22. Um, on the other hand, these verses are intimately related to what follows in John chapter 3 because Nicodemus is clearly one of these guys. Jesus says to him, and, or rather he says to Jesus in John 3:2: no one can do these signs that you do, Unless God is with him. And notice, too, perhaps you caught it the way that 2:25 flows right into three, verse one and following. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. You see the, the verbal connections here. It's all tied together. So what's this all about in verses 23 to 25? I hope you puzzle over this. read it one more time. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, every English Bible reader deserves to know what the original audience of this text knew as soon as they heard verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, it says, many believed in Jesus' name. The verb is believed. In verse 24, it says that Jesus in his part did not entrust himself to them. The verb in verse 24 is entrust. Now here's what every first century hearer who understood Greek would have known. And that's that those two words, believe and entrust, are the exact same word. We learned several weeks ago that the word for believe occurs 99 times in John's gospel. 99 times. And two of those times are right here in verses 23 and 24. You hear what's happening in these verses? They believe him. He doesn't believe them. They trust him. He doesn't trust them. Now this stands in stark contrast to the faith of the disciples. The disciples take Jesus at his word. We saw this in chapter 1. Follow me. His word. And they did. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 22. John says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That took three years, but once he was resurrected, they did believe his word and they believed the scripture. Their faith was resting on words, Christ's words. And what's the faith of the Passover crowd resting on? Works. Christ's works. You say, what's the difference? Who cares? Jesus cares. A lot. Um, Turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Here we're told that Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had believed in him. You read that and you just think he's talking to disciples. And yet, if we persist with these verses, we would be very, very slow to conclude that he's actually talking to disciples. Chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father, The works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. By the way, this is just a comment that they don't believe the virgin birth at all. They believe that Jesus was a bastard. We have one father... Even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is because you are not of God. You hear what's going on here? Disciples believe Jesus' words. They take him at his word. His word is enough. His works, his miracles, are very encouraging. Very confirming. They are a gift. But they are not the basis of our faith. Now the crowd at the Passover believes Jesus' works. They take him at his works. Because for the crowd, Jesus' word is not enough. His words are fine, they're just not sufficient. What Jesus is really responding to here, I think, is the tendency of the human heart to take God for a cosmic sugar daddy, not the all satisfying treasure of the universe. This is what Jesus is discerning here in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Jesus needs no one to inform him of what's inside people. You know what's inside us? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. That's what's happening here in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Passover crowd believes uh, in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. They trust him, he doesn't trust them. He knows all people, and he knows what we need is not moral reformation. We don't need to follow a list of prescribed activities, whether baptism or confirmation or membership or walking an aisle or praying a prayer or signing a card. We don't need to listen to certain radio stations or watch certain television stations. What we need is so deep and so searching, we can't accomplish it. We need a new birth. If you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. Jesus is crystal clear about the absolute necessity of regeneration, Second point today, Jesus is crystal clear on the nature of regeneration. Jesus is crystal clear on the nature of regeneration. In this exchange with Jesus, Nicodemus asks three questions. The first two questions are going to set up point two, and the last question sets up point three. So here's the first two questions, and Jesus answered to them. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus is crystal clear on the nature of regeneration. Now, just because there's clarity here doesn't mean there's no mystery here. Uh, anyone who tells you there's no mystery in the new birth is mistaken. But don't mistake the presence of mystery for a lack of clarity. Jesus is crystal clear on the nature of regeneration, and here's the nature of it. We don't do it. The nature is that it is supernature. Regeneration is supernatural. It's a miracle. If you are a Christian... You contributed as much to your second birth as you did to your first birth. In fact, a, a Christian who is proud of the, their regeneration is like a newborn baby strutting through the pediatric unit. You think that's funny, right? Well, what Nicodemus says here to Jesus is twice as absurd. What, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time, there's a picture, into his mother's womb and be born? You tell me which is weirder. Jesus answered Nicodemus in verses 5 to 8 is just straight Bible. He's dealing with a Pharisee, so he floats some Bible his way. And he expects him to make the connection. What's underneath Jesus' words to Nicodemus is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, which says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give to you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's, he's deeply at work in the new birth. We are deeply on the receiving end. The references to water in Ezekiel 36 and in John 3 are not references to water baptism. It doesn't fit the flow of these passages. It's a reference to spirit baptism, not immersion into water, but immersion into God. Regeneration, the new birth. In the new birth, God, one thing he does is he washes away the stain of sin. In the new birth, God renews and inclines our mind and our heart and our will toward him in the new birth god empowers godly behavior godly living as paul says in titus 3:5 he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit and if that weren't enough of a biblical backdrop for ezekiel jesus one more time says in verse 8 The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. We we don't have time to turn there, but underneath this, I believe, is Ezekiel 37, which I preached a few years ago. It's the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. The word for spirit and the word for wind, the word for breath, it's the exact same word in the Bible. Jesus is comparing the predictability of new birth to the predictability of the wind to the probability of a, of a dead person becoming alive. Regeneration is that powerful. It's that unpredictable, and it's that unstoppable. So notice to this point, Nicodemus' head is spinning. We're going to see that in verse 9. I wonder if yours is too. But notice to this point what the Bible says about new birth. If you want a new life, you must undergo new birth. You need it, but you can't make it happen. God births spiritual life. We don't do it. John Murray wrote in 1955, we may not like it. We may recoil against it. It may not fit into our way of thinking or accord with our time-worn expressions, which are the coin of our evangelism. But if we recoil against it, we do well to remember that this recoil is recoil against Christ. That observation is very, very helpful to me. If regeneration, if the new birth is necessary, and if it's something that we can't produce, how do we get born again? How do we help others get born again? How do you know if you have been born again? And... It's starting to feel out of our hands, isn't it? And here's where we're reminded of the words of the disciples to Jesus when they say to him in Matthew 1925, "Who then can be saved?" And Jesus says, "With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What is impossible with man is impossible with God. One more time, I'd like to quote John Murray, who writes, Far too frequently, the conception entertained of conversion is so superficial and so beggarly that it completely fails to take account of the momentous change of which conversion is the fruit. A cheap and tawdry evangelism has tended to rob the gospel which it proclaims of the invincible power which is the glory of the gospel of sovereign grace may the church come to think and live again in terms of the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation so we need it god does it what are the means of it how would we know if we've been born again well jesus is crystal clear he's crystal clear on the new life of regeneration point number 3 Jesus is crystal clear on the new life of regeneration. Nicodemus asked one final question, and Jesus' answer to the question provides the answer to probably a number of questions that you might have right now. Let me give the first subpoint underneath point three, and then I'll read the rest of the text for us. Here's the subpoint Despite Scripture's clarity, there remains much confusion on this topic. Despite Scripture's clarity, there remains much confusion on this topic. Now listen to verses nineteen to, or 9 to 21. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you don't believe Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and he does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God Jesus is crystal clear on the new life of regeneration Now, despite the clarity there's still confusion and if you're confused this morning you're in well the company of Nicodemus verse 9 he's exasperated he's bewildered how can these things be and what's interesting is, I don't know who's more surprised, Jesus or Nicodemus, because Jesus says to him, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. And the answer to that question is a resounding, exactly. He, he doesn't understand these things. Nicodemus is a leader, and he's very confused. Imagine how perplexed his followers must feel. Nicodemus is a teacher. Picture how bewildered his students must be. Take it to the bank. When there is a mist in the pulpit, there is a fog in the pew. This is the blind leading the blind, and it's still true today. Regeneration, the doctrine of new birth, is just not well understood. It's not understood by church members, it's not well understood by and large by church leaders, oftentimes. One great area of confusion is the relationship of faith to regeneration. It's obvious that faith is critical. Uh, The word believe appears seven times between verses 12 to 18, seven times. Uh, Believing, saving faith, is essential. But I, I would submit to you that saving faith is the result of regeneration. We sang it, I don't know if you believe it, but we sang it, Beauty that made this heart adore you. You might look at John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, or 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, past tense verb, God births us. Anyhow, we might want to ask the question as we close, how do you know if you've If you've been born again, no matter how my faith came to me, how do I know if I have it? Which is the burden of John's gospel. I would say three things in closing. You know you've got it when you are leaning on the truth of the gospel, loving the light of Christ, and living in the strength that God supplies. I think that's what Jesus says here in this paragraph. You know you've been born again when you are leaning on the truth of the gospel, Loving the light of Christ and living in the strength that God supplies. We'll take each in turn as we do application and we close. That first blank, leaning on the truth of the gospel, it it could be looking to the truth of the gospel, which would hook in with verses 14 and 15. It could be learning the truth of the gospel or leaning on the truth of the gospel might be a nice halfway house here. Remember the purpose of John's gospel. John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verses 14 to 16 are the heart of the gospel message. They're at the center of the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is a bloody cross upon which Jesus died as he bore the curse for sin that we deserve. And that's what Jesus is getting at with the image of the serpent In chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Numbers chapter 21, verse 8 is the background here, and it would be an important part of your homework. The serpent is the cursed one in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3 says. The serpent bears... Uh, the brunt of uh, the curse of the fall, not Adam and Eve. And this picture of the serpent being lifted up is uh, Jesus picks that up and he describes himself as one cursed, as he was lifted up. And he was lifted up in one place. He was lifted up on the cross. So just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And here's the key, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you'll link that with verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So belief or faith is trust that transforms you because we're not done talking about belief when we simply talk about the idea of learning the truth of the gospel. It's it's more than that. Learning is truth, trusting, uh, rather belief is trust that transforms you So we want to add to this that you know you've been born again, not just when you understand that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. It's important to add that you love the message of Jesus on his cross. Verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So being a learner of the truth doesn't conclusively mean anything. I might even suggest that leaning on the truth doesn't conclusively um, tell us where we stand. Satan himself is a better theologian than any of us. He knows the gospel inside and out, and he hates the gospel. It's a story that R.C. Sproul has told about the nature of saving faith, and it's pretty good. R.C. Sproul used to use the image of faith is, a, is like a chair, and you know you have saving faith when you're willing to sit in the chair, right? You can talk all day long about how the chair would support you, how the chair could hold you up. You can know the properties of the chair. You can realize it would withstand your weight, but until you, what, sit down in the chair, you're not uh, trusting that chair like you should. Well, really interesting. R.C. Sproul gave that story at a conference one time of saving faith and uh, John Piper was in the audience and John Piper heard him and he said, let me just ask that question, this question. What if the chair is ugly? What if I see the chair and uh, I don't want to sit in the chair, but I'm tired and there's a chair here, so I'm just going to sit. I guess I'll just sit in this chair. Is that chair ugly? is the question. And Sproul grabbed Piper by the lapels of his coat and he said, the chair is beautiful. What's the point of that story? It's not just about leaning on the truth of the gospel. It's about loving the gospel. It's about loving Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, he speaks of all those who have loved his appearing, not just to those who have mentally assented to his appearing. You see why the new birth is a miracle. Finally, you know you've been born again if you live in the strength that he supplies. Verses 20 to 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Faith without works is dead. You connect that with the way that Peter talks in 1 Peter 4:11, whoever serves, let him s- serve in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So living in the strength that God supplies, the Christian life is supernatural to the core. That's how you know if you've been born again. You're leaning on the truth of the gospel. You love the light of Christ and you live in the strength that he supplies. Saving faith is so radical that it can't be self-generated. And I invite you this morning to believe in Jesus. To put your faith in him. To come to Jesus. To rest in Jesus. To be satisfied in Jesus. To lean on him. To love the light that you see. And to live in the strength that he supplies you. If you want a new life, you must undergo a new birth. Jesus is crystal clear on the necessity of regeneration, on the nature of regeneration, and the new life that follows regeneration. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Next week, Seth Brickley will open the scriptures for us and teach us more of our Savior as we look one more time at John the Baptist with a sermon entitled, He Must Increase, But I Must Decrease. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter of Holy Scripture. There truly is something for each one of us here, Lord. I pray that the old, old story of Jesus and his love, your love, Lord Jesus, for sinners would be wooing and persuasive to people within the sound of my voice this morning. That people who came in with no hope would leave with hope because they leave with Jesus. And Lord, all of us who profess faith in you, I, I pray that we would linger here and consider whether we possess faith in Jesus. Lord, it is of mission-critical importance that we test ourselves to see if we are of the faith. Lord, help us to be people who lean on the truth of the gospel, who love the gospel, who celebrate the gospel, and who demonstrate it by the by the way that we live in the strength that you supply. We thank you for the miracle of not only the new birth, but the new life that follows. May we bring that life, the fragrance of the knowledge of him, everywhere we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen.